This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. I'm your host, Kay Kalyani. Welcome to the New Books Network channel in South Asian Study. Today, we have with us Professor Brahma Prakash, and we are here to discuss his very interesting work, Body on the Barricade. Brahma Prakash, uh, let me introduce you all to him. He is a leading cultural theorist from India, and he is assistant professor at School of Arts and Aesthetic at Jawaharlal Nehru University at New Delhi. He writes on contemporary politics and culture. His research interests include ritual, festival, cultural enactment, and non-Western aesthetic theories. His first book was Cultural Labor from Oxford University Press, and recently he has come out with his second book, Body on the Barricade, from Leftward Publication. Welcome, Brahmu, to the show. Thank you. Thank you so much, Kalyani, for giving me this opportunity. I really feel honored to be part of this discussion. It's it's honor on our part, too. So uh, let me briefly introduce the book to the authors, uh, book to you all. So, Body on Barricade is an interesting gaze onto life, art, and resistance in contemporary India. Through a wide canvas of contemporary events, the book has tried to look onto how barricade becomes a symbol of excessive policing as well as a metaphor of containment. The book also reflects upon marginalized identities and the conflicting narratives of such identities with state that unfolds almost like a horror story. The book has interestingly engaged with each of such suppressive events through the affect it generates on the victimized body. The book has beautifully captured bodily acts like breathing, mourning, dancing, singing, and other creative expressions as an act of resistance. Thus, resistance becomes an act that is not just visible out there, but it also becomes an inward experience. The book has lucid language, and yet it is written with a sense of authenticity that dares to speak out. The book ends with a clarion call of hope among despair that prevails. The author has ensured that every narrator who has been the victim gets enough space to think about their acts of resistance rather than being passive dead protagonists lying onto the barricade. So let me begin, Brahma, by asking you the first question that if you can briefly talk about how did the journey of this book started? What prompted you to write this book at first place? Also, if you can reflect on the title of your book. Thank you. Thank you so much, Kalyani, for giving this like no broad idea about the book and also introducing my like background. So... Yeah, so this is a very a strange journey and I think like, you no, know, so it was not like a motivation, it was a provocation and incitement that made me to write this book. The book is a gutsy response to gutsy politics that was unfolding and that is still unfolding in front of us. Uh, 
this book was not planned in that way. It has started as a response. So it has started with response to the events. For example, we have seen migrant crisis in the India. We have also seen the farmers' protests. In the whole situation, what we realized that curtailment and resistance were coming together. They were combining together. And that became the point of some kinds of provocation in which I started writing. Also, I feel that, like many of us, also feel quite suffocated with the situation that is emerging either in the cultural life or political life in India. And I think that I also wanted to breathe. So it was also like, you know, a writing, act of writing becomes a point of breathing for me. And therefore, it becomes a quite embodied writing in my very act. And for me personally, it has an interesting journey because earlier I used to do a street theater. I was part of a street theater group. And for various reasons, I was not able to continue that journey. So many times that time, those times I would, would write songs and plays for the group. While I was doing my academic stuff, stuffs, I was feeling a sense of loss and I was unable to connect with my own creative impulses. Sometimes I would write songs and poems. I have done some songs and lyrical adaptation of Maya Angelou. Pablo Neruda poetry, but I must mention one strange encounter that made me like no writer and made me to write this book also. So one day a right-wing newspaper approached me to write occasional columns for them. I wrote one, but not to be published further for, of course, like a very obvious reason. But then I, real, I realized that I can write for the popular reader, that I can communicate my passion and frustration in this mode of writing. I have started writing columns for various media platforms and many times positive feedback from friends and readers and wider dissemination of motivated me to wider dissemination of those works motivated me to take on this mode of writing. So more than anything else, for me, this book is a my experiment and journey with writing. Like many of us who come from marginalized background, I too struggle a lot with writing. Many times writing was a very humiliating experience for me. But what I felt with this writing where like, you know, I was feeling, I was getting a sense of, I was able to feel the sense of liberation. I was able to bring my own voices. I was able to bring my own experiences. And I'm still, so this is still not a complete, I will say this is a complete project that I can announce. So this is a, just a journey that I have started. And I'm still trying to find my voice, my association, my disparate experiences in my writing. Writing to me becomes a search. And I think this has been all the like new points that I am trying to bring it here become a point where I started this writing. So many times this writing also gives me a strength. It gives me a healing capacity. The, this mode of writing has been so much liberating for me that I perhaps cannot like make this point in words. But the problem with the short media writing and if you know that if you're writing for a newspaper, if you're writing for these kinds of short media platforms, they will ask you to write in a very limited words. So either you write in 800 words or 1,500 words, and then you don't get time and a space to explore the themes that you want to explore. And perhaps so I had already had some like, you know, fragments of writing. And then I started developing those writings as a like you know, keeping in the minds of some kinds of connections and bringing some of those connections and connection largely was coming in terms of curtailment and resistance. And I think those points really like, you know, brought these things together as a book or book of essays for that matter. Also, I would like to point out here that uh, many times, like, you know, publishers were not ready to publish it. I have like, you know, sent this monograph to few publishers and because of this uncanny writings and many times volatile language many publishers were not ready to take this project but i would like to really thankful to left word publication who finally decided to take this project and publish this book as a book of essay or one can also see it is a proper book in that sense yeah so and as far as this title is concerned i think the earlier i have given this title is called it like when i was submitting the monograph i given the title when we can't breathe curtailment of life and freedom in contemporary india but then i also realized that yeah, i'm not only talking about curtailment but i am also talking about hope and resistance and i think anybody who is talking about some kinds of egalitarian politics i think the question of hope and question of 
uh, both the question of hope and utopia become quite interesting and I think very like a point of our strengths because we cannot give up on like no without we cannot think about politics without hope we cannot think about the politics without utopia and you already have writer like Gail Ombit who has like clearly pointed out that why we need to have a utopia and I think it is not the privilege the people who are talking about utopia who are talking about how hope not necessarily talking from the points of privilege because I think we don't have I think we can say that we don't have privilege to not have utopia. So we don't have that privilege to not have utopia. And therefore, I think both hope and utopia becomes a crux of this book also. And I'm happy that many of the activists and writer readers are reading it as a book of hope also. So thank you so much. This was a brief response about like a long response of your very like my soft questions. Hmm. Yeah, that's lovely to know about uh, the hope and utopia. In fact, the book has perfectly weaved these two motives together. It's also very interesting to know about your own personal and political getting blurred into uh, presenting such wonderful work and the way you've described the sense of self that you actually felt through this book. So that's an incredible journey indeed. So uh, let me come to the next question, Brahm. Uh, in your first book, uh, which was Cultural Labor, uh, we felt or there was an in-depth uh, and extensive study of performance and laboring bodies that were embedded in the performative space. In this book, you have also looked onto bodies of marginalized identities, but through the lens of resistance. In a way, the book seems to shift the gaze from a performative lens to the lens of resistance. Can you reflect more on how do you look onto resisting bodies in terms of its visuality as well as viscerality? As well as, uh, do you think uh, it, is, it, it is in any way uh, that uh, resisting bodies are performative as well? Thank you. This is, I will say, very difficult questions, but I will try to answer as much as possible as I can do. And But again, I would like to go back to this question of hope that I was trying to point out and why I think that is very crucial in my book. I think that as a scholar, as an activist, and as a writer coming from like a first generation learner, I think we need to keep keep creating this hope. And I think this also becomes our like no responsibility. We also need to renew the language for their transformative potentials and writing that connect can connect us to the community. And I think we keep discussing about method and methodology and many times we fall into this whole category of the technologies and making some kinds of a scholarly claim. But the whole point of I think method methodology should be also points out to making how we are going to connect with the people, how we are going to connect with our reader, how we are going to connect with our communities to create a sense of dialogue or to make the dialogue more democratic. So that would be one part. Coming back to your questions that I feel that perhaps I don't have very good response, good answer to that, but let me try. So first of all, thanks for pushing me to think in that direction that bring intersection between both of my works. Yeah, and you are right. The, in the first book, I am inherently talking about theater and performance as a empirical and anthropological category. So you have like a very clear examples where I'm talking about performers. I'm talking about the communities, and I'm this. Of course, I'm not also trying to reduce them to anthropological category because I also I'm trying to make an intersection. Even in my first book, I'm trying to make an intersection between anthropology and aesthetics, anthropology and cultural theories, and so those communities or those performances should not get reduced to the very like no very typical anthropological kinds of lens in which they become part of the ritual and some community becomes part of the citizenship. So I try to evade that category also. But what I feel in the second case, what is happening that like in, in second case, there is something interesting is happening here that how protest itself is becoming a performative movements and acquiring some kinds of theatricalities. So here I'm not necessarily talking about empirical categories of the performances or empirical categories of the performers or dancers for that matter. But for example, I'm talking about migrant labor, like migrant, I'm talking about migrant laborers, and I'm seeing that key how migrant laborers become a metaphor of dancer. So here, migrant laborers are becoming the metaphor of dancers and therefore I'm talking this theatrical category, the aesthetic category in a more metaphorical sense and I will say in a more performative ways also. Uh, 
so in the second case theater is becoming a topography of thinking so not necessarily i'm talking about theater but theater itself is becoming a gauge it is becoming a topography of thinking as well as a gauge which articulates the bodies in a movement i intend to show that at least in the second book body on the barricades i intend to show the gestural formation of political theater in protest and assembly while scholars have examined the elements of performatives in many recent protests, they have like many writings that have come after farmers' protest, after MTCA protest, and you have like they are talking about performatives of this protest. What I claim, something new that I claim that there has been a performative turn of the political itself from the way protesters used to march together earlier and the way we are seeing protest now. And I think if any, we are trying to see either it was a like no the protest after the death of Rohit Bemula, or we can say institutional murder, murder of Rohit Bemula, then also we are seeing more poetry, more music now, more gestural kinds of presence of the bodies. And that is where I'm trying to bring this topography of theater. And you already have a scholars, for example, Ron C would talk about, he will say that how politics does have a structure of theater. And in which so I'm taking some of those scholars who are talking about how politics have a structure of theater. When we're talking about aesthetics, where we are talking about redistribution of the sensible, then in this political kinds of landscape, I'm trying to find the resonance of the theater. I'm trying to see the formation of political in those sense. Also, and I will say if you're if you are going to protest and if you have seen what is happening in the very recent protest and this has happened during the farmers protest this has happened during the una strikes what we are seeing that more protest more songs are happening on the borders so more exhibitions so you are going to see the art exhibition that is happening during the protest you are going to see more artists are joining the protest more singers are coming to the protest more like so it is becoming like you no know, somewhere we are seeing the certain kinds of merger of art and politics and politics is taking necessarily for me politics is taking a performative turn and that is why i'm trying to see these kinds of bodies in that movement and also your point of whether to see it is a resisting bodies or performative bodies and i will say resisting bodies can be so but again you are right many times resisting bodies can be very very performative and many examples that i am giving you that clearly indicate towards that kinds of formation but i would also like to say that not necessarily all the resisting bodies are always performative or as i go with this idea of performance many times resisting bodies can be anti-performance anti-performative and can take a clear anti-performance stance where performance is becoming the logic of the capital and name of the merit in a society so if we are thinking about very neoliberal kinds of neoliberal kinds of formation then all idea is about performance or else how you have to perform so it is merit is about performance caste is about performance and like you know, all the kinds of ritual you are talking about it is all about performance but when the protest happens when one say that for example you have whole notion of adivasi community that adivasis are going to dance so whatever the function will be organized by the government institution or corporate institution the larger imagination is that adivasi is going to dance but once you are making this a statement that adivasi is not going to dance then that itself becomes a very like no i will say point of resistance and then that stance is not necessarily performative for me that becomes an act of anti-performance and same way when we are talking about una strike and i have discussed quite a brief like you no know, in a detailed in a, one of the chapter where i'm talking about siege against the siege so una strike i would read una strike as a primary and a stance that goes against the idea of the performance where you have like whole caste idea very casteist notion of the performance where you have very brahminical model of performance so how una strike was able to seize that movement of performance and was able to provide some kinds of what we can term as anti-performative or anti-performance stand in that sense yeah so i will say this has been a more or less the kinds of framework in which i think both the books differs in the first book theater and performance becomes very empirical concrete categories here like you know, theater and performance comes as a metaphor but also comes in a more complex ways where we are able to see the assembly of the bodies and formation of the political in a quite i will say gestural ways or in a theatrical sense so I think I would stop it here and yeah, thank you.
that's very interesting brahm the way you have actually talked about how you're making a shift from your first book to second book where your first book was more about an anthropological gaze into performance and in your second book you are talking more into protest as performance as performative and you're also talking about anti performance uh, which is also part of uh, the protest and it's very interesting the way you look into protest as the site or or, or, or as a topography of thinking and uh, to claim new identities or to claim new ideas uh, so i i'm sure uh, this will open up more conversations on, around how do we read performance and performativity at first place so uh, let me come to the next question uh, brahm your book has an interesting canvas to look at you have navigated from issues on kashmir to covid to hatras amidst your discussion it is interesting to read that there is a performative way in which each of these narratives unfold the narratives itself become part of the political and the cultural thinking are you also trying to rethink performance by going beyond the conventional speciality and temporality in your work thank you thank you again like you know i will say it's a very i will say dip, again a difficult questions to answer and say in yes or no but i would say that yes to an extent that i am trying to go beyond very conventional understanding of performance to an extent but there has been a lot of debates already there has been many scholars who have been engaged in this mode of thinking and you have like no theater Uh, director theater practitioner antonio arto who did a remarkable work in on theater and he has like no many books and writings on theater and there was a point of time where he compared theater with plague so he was able to see that how theater how like no he was able to see theater not just in terms of some kinds of enactment but theater should be, is becoming so pervasive or maybe one can read plague as unfolding as a theater or the way one can read even covid-19 the way covid-19 was unfolding the way it was impacting our psychological and sociological life so that was also becoming a model of theater so already have some debates in which like you no know, scholars have participated and where they have tried to break this boundaries or like a you know, very empirical idea of the theater and performance for that matter but what i will say that again to an extent if you are thinking about more cultural specific context of india then i think yes my work tries to go beyond this understanding where we used to think theater in a very limited sense or theater in a very like you know i will say in some kinds of like you know, practice performative practice or some kinds of artistic practice so here if you are trying to use that model the way antonio arto will think about many scholars will think about then what we can also see that ki how performance is becoming the core of both neoliberalism and brahminism we cannot think about brahminism or caste kinds of practices caste system in india without performance it is full of performance because if you are thinking and i have given many examples in my book that ki how whether it is about working and i am taking examples citing examples from natya shastra then how these were the quite encoded practices where there has been a whole like you no know, how upper castes are going to work how lower castes going to work how women are going to work they all were quite encoded movement and this is quite encoded in natya shastra like text and therefore when we are reading about performance then one we are reading about very like you know typical about thinking about performance as some kinds of art work or performance as some kinds of ritual work but when we are taking performance as a conceptual framework then i am also trying to read those texts already existing texts in a new ways or i am trying to revisit those texts to make some kinds of performative claims and therefore i would agree with you that to an extent yes i am reading performance as a performance but also i am trying to make a more larger kinds of canvas trying to open up the more spaces where performance becomes a lens it becomes a gaze and again performative become body becomes the site of our study in a more complicated and complex ways But thank you yes, indeed indeed from i think uh, the the whole aspect of performance as a gaze is very much visible and in fact it is this theoretical framework uh, which has uh, which one can say has allowed you to think or through a vast canvas of uh, issues from kashmir to covid to hatras so uh, that's very interesting uh, let me come to the next question 
why do you think uh, the idea of body is central to the book? Can you explain to our listeners how you connect the idea of body with different themes in your book? Yeah, so it, so it has a very, I will say again, because if you are thinking about any post situation, and I think if you are thinking about some kinds of confinement, if you are thinking about some kinds of breathlessness or condition where we feel suffocated, then I think body becomes the primary site that come under attack or body becomes the site which becomes a part of resistance also. And I think you have like you no know, Professor Nivedita Menon, she was also has written a endorsement and she was also talking in one discussion that how the and I think I'm also trying to read my book through her own reading that how she was trying to make those connections. And then Nivedita was says, so Nivedita, Professor Nivedita Menon was saying, pointing out that how the power of emotion set this body or like the body is in motion, rake, so it's full of rake grief, solidarity, love, hatred, and you cannot talk about all these elements without body. Body becomes the central manifestation of all these emotions in which I'm talking about the body. And therefore, when either I'm talking about the curtailment of mourning in context of Kashmir and Hathras case, then also body becomes the center. It is body gestures, like you no, know, it is the ultimately the dead body, which is not getting a dignified space or dignified morning in that way. And so in different ways, body come to the center. So either I'm talking about like no category of breathlessness. So first chapter discusses about like when we can't breathe, then ultimately breathe is a part of the body and the body becomes the center of breathing and therefore center of exercising the notion of freedom and like no liberation for that matter. And second case, I'm talking about words. So I'm also talking about curtailment of words that how demagoguery culture talks about curtailment, like no first things they do that they attack the words, they paralyze the words in different ways. But again, words, if you read like bhakti, bhakti kinds of poetry, and if you have notion of the words very much embodied in, embodied in Indian culture, then you will find that words definitely is a manifestation of the body. And therefore, curtailment of words is also curtailment of body to an extent. And that is the way I'm trying to bring this connection that before you are going to attack the body, first you are going to attack the words. And this is the way either you are thinking about the lynch culture or you are thinking about different kinds of physical attacks or that like no is now getting like more witnessed by the marginalized communities. Then you will see that words and bodies do not remain in a kinds of working in a very separate kinds of domain. So in general, unless you do, does not come to our, and also if you're thinking about like resistance, then unless it does not come to our body, many times we don't feel the pain. And therefore, the point was that how you are going to respond to the gutsy politics that is in, unfolding in front of our eyes. And I think even if you want to provide a resistance or you are providing a certain kinds of reading, then I think we cannot evade the notion, like no idea of the body itself, because ultimately the body that is coming under the attack and body that is getting attacked for that matter. And I, what I will do that I start with the preface and I think if you read the preface, then in preface, the whole dimension of the body unfolds in the time of COVID. But COVID is there is just a metaphor, it is a case of metaphor. I'm talking about COVID-like situation that is very much part of the Indian society. And, and therefore, I think again, the dimension of body becomes the center. So what I will do that I would like to read out a section to make some of these connections where you are saying that okay, how I'm trying to make the body at the center. And I'm talking about, so I'm talking about the urgency of life. In the urgency of life, body takes all the attention. So what I will do that I will read one, two sections. Sure, to, it will be lovely. Because, yeah, thank you. Because this is also a book about more about experiment in writing. So I also want to give a reader a sense of like no writing that what how I am trying to approach this text, how I have written this text. So I hope that I will be able to provide like give some like no taste for the reader so they may get interested in reading reading this book. Sure. It was April 2021, a ghastly month for India. The second wave of the COVID-19 pandemic ravaged the nation like a tsunami, moving so fast that before people could grasp its reality, they were in its grip, yearning for life and gasping for breath. While working on this book of essays, I took out the virus. 
the moment came for me too. Breathlessness suddenly became raw and real for me. Like a live wire, it entered my nerves. With an oximeter attached to my fingers and thermometer on my tongue, I felt the urgency of life. Moments turns into events when you start counting every breath. You count the heartbeat, you count, you, you count your pulsating veins, you count blood vessels and bones. You become vigilante of your own body. You never know when lungs and bones can turn white or black, when blood will turn into water and disappears from the body like a vapor. You keep checking if the skin is changing its color. Devoured by the virus, you check that your eyes are not turning black. You still see, you still think, you still register, you still resist. Before I proceed and you preside, let me clarify that this is not a book on the pandemic. The reference to pandemic repeat only to surface a symptomatic condition of the curtailment of life. The book is about a pand pandemic-like situation. In the urgency of life, body takes all the attention, it takes all the forms, it takes all the shapes, it takes all the toll. You breathe like a fish out of water, you crawl like a worm, making all kinds of shapes. You move slowly like a Japanese Buddha dancer on a beat. You feel blockages you have never felt. You feel the openings you have never thought. You see the thoughts you have never seen. Out of fear of the virus, you check everything. You clean the broom and sanitize the sanitizer. You bath the water before you take a bath. When fear, when fear enters our psyche, we become suspicious of everything. Everything, we suspect everyone. What about, what about the others? What about the sanitation workers who work in sewers? There the suffocation does not come as a surprise. The pandemic is a life they live every day. Indignity is a general condition of living and being, and being choked to death is the most common bulletin of dying. Breathlessness is a general condition of life. They already live in, in, in quarantine maps. When they are born, their birth is marked. When they walk, their bodies get marked. They carry marked bodies through life and death. Every day they walk into quarantine zones. What I'm trying to say that how bodies time and again become the central metaphors, not only metaphors like most. One is a very like empirical body that I'm talking about, but it also becomes a metaphors in which like things are unfolding in India and South Asia at large. I would like to go to some other sections. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Sax.com. Cartel movement create choreography patterns. They enter the bones and become part of the muscle memory, sometimes keeping bodies on the barricade, sometimes hiding behind the barricades. They learn to walk. Caste society has produced perhaps the most conscious act of walking for women and outcasts. One must be aware of social status while walking. They not only define the social rules, they also govern the aesthetic rules. The Indian aesthetic text, the Natya Shastra, prescribes how the lower caste and women should walk, what should be the gates of the lowly people. And I'm trying to quote here, I'm quoting here from the Natya Shastra, and it says, persons of inferior worth are to walk with eyes looking around, protecting their limbs from the contact of other people. Quote of, of. The restrictions are embodied, movements are marked. In relation to social position, they are marked on temple walls, instilled in schools and installed in institutions. They are in a social courts, in the walks, gates and grids. They carry this internalized prescription in their eyes. They will stare at you, but keep your eyes low. And this is what generally women are told in our society. The curtailment of movement has slowly cut the bone. They limp when they walk, they cripple when they move. They cannot stand properly. It breaks their backbones every day. They have been walking a curtail walk. What you are seeing is not always sexy curves. It can be a curved body in sexual codes, like the Chinese foot binding that produced lotus feet. 
while the women cries in pain, lotuses springs from her every step for the conizers. Conizers, in the name of art and tradition, appreciation and object objectification go together. And I have been working on a chapter like you no know, a paper where I'm trying to say that okay, how many times like in Indian aesthetics, it is the enjoyment and objectification go together, and that is the paradox. We can talk to the bodies, and that is why also body becomes the center. Like to take another one paragraph, and I think after that we can go to the next questions. And so the question comes that why body on the barricades and why body becoming a central metaphor and category in this book. So body on the barricade is a book of essays on the curtailment of life, art, and freedom in contemporary India. It is about the situation that stands at the edge. One stands at the margin. It also shows how politics and aesthetics are coming to a corporeal level, entering our psyche, playing out on our bodies and mind every day. We start thinking from the barricades in a situation of extreme vulnerability. It is the situation in which we enter the state of we can't return, we can't yield anymore. It is the limit of concession after one cannot surrender but you cannot stand motionless at the barricade. It is the limit, but also the last base from where one can resist. It is the last site from which one new politics and culture may emerge. We risk spaces. You are aware that if you move a step ahead, the authority may shoot you down, but two steps will bring life and freedom. Not doing anything will bring nothing. The fear of the end and the temptation for freedom keeps changing the axioms of art and life. Body on the Barricade is about thinking about life and freedom from the points of confinement. And if you're thinking about the situation of confinement, then again, body becomes the center of this whole idea of the confinement. It is about the act of breathing from the point of breathlessness. It is the ultimate resolution of the body to cross the barbed buyers. It is the situation in which we cannot breathe, but we breathe. And that, that is the resolution I'm trying to make. That it is the situation that we are facing that you are not able to breathe, but you are breathing for life and freedom. As the authoritarian regime pushes its boundaries, curtails our life and freedom, we have, to, we have no option but to walk. The situation gives birth to new politics, new resistance, new resolution, and new realization. Breathing, which was a natural and unconscious act, suddenly becomes a conscious act. What was physiological becomes political. The right to breathe becomes a new assertion, name of the bare minimum that one can ask for. And that is the way I would like to talk about the centrality of the body in my book. But at the same time, I would also like to say that in many of the recent discourses, there has been a lot of valorization of the body without making any that kinds of political claim that many times not talking about that kinds of resistance that we can talk about. So perhaps I'm not trying to provide that kinds of reading. I'm trying to provide some kinds of reading with the hope where body is becoming the center with all the political regions, with all the relations with the labor and love and freedom that we can talk about. And I think I was hopefully I was able to answer your questions yeah. on the twice centrality of the body. Yeah, that was lovely, uh, Brahm. In fact, uh, one thing that strikes me most is how poetically you have, uh, and, and in a very lucid way, you have put out some of the very complicated ideas like bodies and barricades. It's very interesting to see how you make body as a central metaphor that gets embedded in the processes of curtailment and suppression. And it's also very interesting to look into how you have weaved together the idea of barricade and body together. Uh, and for you, of course, barricade is not just those physical barricade, but it actually becomes the process of unfolding of the history of revolution itself. So that's wonderful. And I'm sure the audience here uh, will be loving to uh, read the, your book uh, over and over again. So, uh, let me ask you a question based on one of your chapter that interested me the most. Uh, so in your chapter... Kalyan, I'm just interrupting you. Just wanted to read one paragraph on sure. this barricade, idea of the barricade, because I think that barricade body we have discussed. But just to give you an idea about that, how I'm trying to understand this notion of the barricade, because this is not only the physical object that I'm talking about. And so I would like to read one paragraph from the book to make this connection between sure, the barricades. 
so barricades has a strange history and we know that history. so it is an object that people created on the streets to defend themselves against armies but today it is turned against them it has become an instrument in the hands of police and armies to curtail movement and if you know the history of barricade in europe then it has a very glorious history where like you no know, i remember in jnu listening this slogan that like you know comrade comrade we will like comrade comrade let like you no know, I think yeah. So that was the slogan. Something like to bring out barricades or something like that. Karakoro barricade, comrade. But then I was not able to realize the meaning of that slogan. That why we want to again erect the barricade. Because when you think about barricade in our very contemporary situation, then the meaning of barricade has become very very negative in that way. But yeah, we need to see this whole barricade idea of the barricade in a more I think meaningful ways and in a more kinds of complex ways. So other relationship between the body and the barricade is a layered one. It's a quite layered one. We can think about different scenario in which they come together. The first scenario emerges in police and army action in which the body gets pushed by the barricades and that we usually see during the protest marches and things. In the second scenarios, protesters erect barricade to push the authority and that if you know that when land displacement was happening uh, around indigenous communities in India, then also those communities were trying to erect some kinds of barricade in a different ways. In the third scenario that we can discuss that barricades offers a security against the authority. In the fourth scenario, the body turns into barricade, a form of collective action assembly. So when we can talk about how body is turning itself as a barricade to defend like no community, to defend situation, to again to resist some kinds of authoritarianism or some kinds of hierarchy that we can talk about. So yeah, so these are the different ways I have talked about the notion of the body and the barricade and how they also become some kinds of interplays in which both these ideas are coming together in my book. Yeah, That's wonderful. You. That's wonderful, Brahm, the way you have talked about body and barricade coming together. Now, let me ask you a question based on one of your chapter that interested me the most, which was the trial of art. And in this chapter, you have interestingly discussed how artists are suppressed within state and are assigned with derogatory sobriquets like terrorists, suspects, etc. Why do you think within contemporary state art has become a conflicted category? Can you also discuss about how the bodies of artists, the imagery of barricade and resistance comes together yeah so let me so yeah you have like you know interesting kinds of writing by many scholars and also artists and one of my famous author Gugiba Thimbo who writes on this whole conflict of art and estates and he's thinking perhaps in a very ideal sense that if you're thinking about a state and I'm large, largely also even in this chapter where I'm discussing about the trial of art then I'm taking a lot from him and his ideas where he's talking about like you know, how a state to remain as a state has to have some kinds of law it has to have some kinds of regulation it should have to have some kinds of permanency so a state to become as a state to work as a state it has to have some kinds of permanent structure in terms of law in terms of regulation in terms of things and if you're thinking about then art then art to remain as an art it has to break that boundaries and that becomes very fundamental antagonism that we can talk about and i have termed as a ontological antagonism between art and a state so basically to a state to remain as a state it must maintain law and boundaries art to remain as an art has to necessarily break the law and boundaries and therefore what we are talking about not necessarily the things that are unfolding today but we are thinking about very fundamental or uh, fundamentals of the art and the state yeah this is a different story that how a state appropriates art how a state fund becomes itself becomes a pattern of the art and then we what we are seeing is a very different idea of the artistic art art and artistic kinds of practices but what i'm trying to bring in this chapter and when i'm thinking about this antagonism then i am thinking fundamentally talking about the two categories that cannot stand against each other 
they always go into that kinds of contestation for very fundamental constitution because if you're thinking about constitution of art then art is all about crossing it is all about transgression it is all about creating new boundaries and going against the boundaries so it has to necessarily break some kinds of rules and things and if you're talking about the state we cannot talk about the state without any without the law without the structure without some kinds of like you know either you are talking about hierarchy and things like that and therefore i am talking about this fundamental contradiction of the state and what is happening now is more interesting because one way we are seeing that whole like a participation of artists who are becoming like a very conservative they are almost like you know becoming conservative getting certain kinds of supports from the state certain kinds of support from the corporates and therefore they are also producing some kinds of art but what i'm trying to say that how some of you are talking about the resistance art you are talking about the art from the resistance point of view then we necessarily need to bring those contradiction we necessarily need to situate that contradiction that has been very fundamental to the ideals of the art and the state and perhaps when i'm talking about trial of art then i'm talking about those situation and then i'm also talking about you are also pointing about this whole idea about so in this chapter i'm discussing about barbara rao the poet from telangana telugu region who writes in telugu language telugu and then what is happening that time i'm also talking about that i have used the metaphor of poet in ambulance so then i'm so one is that of course like barbara rao that time was like hospitalized he was going getting carried by the carried away by like carried by ambulance but when i'm making it with the empirical kinds of situation i am transforming those situation into metaphor in my writing and this has been a very different kinds of experiment with the writings so how metaphor of poet in ambulance what does it mean it is not mean that one barbara rao bb or barbara rao is going to hospitalized getting hospitalized it is what does it mean why when artists are getting artists when metaphor of poet is in ambulance when metaphor of when poet is getting hospitalized in a society when poet is going or artist is getting in coma in a society then we are talking about some very grave kinds of situation because if you are talking about poets and artists then not necessarily we are talking about like one two individual beings or one collective we are talking about fundamental sensibility so attack on artist and poets are not just attack on one or two person we need to think about the attack on poets and artists are that also brings the attacks on fundamental sensibility that bring make us human that makes us sensible to each other and therefore this attack becomes very very special so and that is the question we can ask what does it mean for a society where their poets are in ambulance or in coma poet is representative of sensibility it is not just about society not able to think but society how society so the point i'm trying to make is that how society is not only able to think but how society fails to feel because society has lost its sense of feeling society has lost its sense of sensibility and therefore when one is talking about metaphor of poet or metaphor of artist then i think we can think about all these situations in a different ways bringing this whole contradiction of the artist and the art and the state which again fundamentally goes against each other and perhaps this is the point i am trying to bring in this chapter on the trial of the art on trial of art yeah that's very interesting uh, professor brahm that you are so one, one more yeah sorry sorry interruption please sorry okay. for interruption yeah because you are also talking about the barricade imagery of the barricade and one example again i would like to read from this whole idea of the barricade that okay, how body on the barricade has its own dialectics in the situation of extreme barricading one has no option but to move against the barricading movement is the utopia that gives us a hope but against the rampant movement and performance of capital it is the barricade and the pause that create resistance so i am playing in a very different ways so when i am talking about that you have like you know there is a ceaseless like there is a siege in the movement where no movement is happening and where movement becomes necessary necessary then how barricade is becoming a providing a some kinds of 
like creating some kinds of utopia. But when you are talking about very like you know lot of movement, what we are seeing with the whole technological kinds of innovation and new kinds of coming of the technology or surveillance kinds of economy or regime, then what we are seeing is that constant performance becomes the mode of the regime and the mode of the politics. And if you are witnessing the constant kinds of performance, then I think it is the barricade that gives us the pause, that gives us a hope where we can mark a pause and think about the politics in a new ways or think about resistance in a new ways. But sorry for this interruption. Yeah, just I wanted to make it clear. That was an, uh, that was a very informative and uh, useful interruption, I would say. But it's very interesting, uh, Professor Brahm, that you would, you're talking about uh, at the first level, the ontological antagonism that exists between state and the artist, but also at the metaphorical level about what art means and when an artist is presenting art, how does it communicate with society? How does it relate sensibility into society? So I I think uh, there are too many layered meanings into uh, some of the very seemingly simple sentences that are present in your book. I'm sure uh, this will give author, uh, this will give readers more chance to read your book again and again. So uh, let me conclude, let me ask a concluding question to you. Uh, If you can discuss or you can talk to our uh, audience here. What are your future projects like? And uh, from this book, how do you look uh, onwards? Yeah, thank you. Because I remember that when last time I was talking on the same network about my future book, and I promised that I will be working on cultural justice because that was like no project that I planned. But this book came in between and it has really changed my idea of the writing different ideas of how you're going to use your methods and methodology and how you're going to write because this has been a really different kinds of opening for me very personal very emotional and very i will say deeper in a very deeper sense it has gone to like a very in a deeper sense and then yeah so i have been working on this project on cultural justice and i'm trying to work on this idea of how like we can talk about ethical subject i'm taking some of the ethics from like you have a lot of popular epic performances from Bihar and Uttar Pradesh. So I'm taking some popular epic genres where like, you know, you have very different kinds of alternatives, narratives are getting constituted. You have very alternative narratives in those genres, in those like, you no know, epics. So I'm talking about, for example, I'm talking about Kulan Devi. I'm talking about Hirni Birni who comes from, they both are the sister who come from nomadic communities. So I'm taking some marginal epic genre which I think provides not only going to alter the meaning, the way we used to think about epic, because whenever we think about the epic, we think about Ramayana and Mahabharata, but you have like a lot of epics writings that comes from very marginalized background, come from the subaltern communities and Bahujan communities that way. And I think they carry very different kinds of morality, very different notion of like no dip, very different different sense of sensibilities and that has been an idea and project that i have been working on as a kind of book project so that is the one thing but i think now everything came with a different kinds of challenges that how i'm going to write because i've been already writing in a more academic ways but i think now i have to shift my mode of writing and also think about my own method methodology and different approaches with this book because this book has been a very different kinds of intervention in terms of writing in terms of approaches for me yeah so yeah so that is the larger project that i have been doing for like the future and yeah yeah so that we really look forward to your uh, future works uh, professor Brum. and uh, it's very interesting uh, the way you've talked about your new projects onto questions of cultural justice uh, and uh, new ways to think about epic we really look forward to your work uh, thank you very much for your interaction with the new books network i hope the audience will enjoy listening to you uh, thank you again Thank you. Thank you so much, Kalyani. And I hope that audience are going to read this book because this book is all about reading. It is about experiment in writing. So I think unless you're not going to read, perhaps like you you cannot make those connections that I'm trying to draw it here. So thank you so much for giving me this opportunity and providing me this platform. Yeah, definitely, Brahm. I second you on what you said. Thank you again. Thank you.